Life Audio. Hey, Dr. Bill Sinyard here with the Gospel Rant. We're back at Movement 4. Thanks for all the feedback and dialogue. Keep it coming. We are about proclaiming God's love to the unlovable, the unloved, and the unlovely. Um, and again, may, maybe, like I said last time, maybe it bugs you that I'm speaking to you as if you're unlovable or uh, unloved or unlovely. And that's, that's not me who's saying that, right? I don't know you. To one degree or another, that's what your critical inner voice is telling you 24-7 far too often. The gospel is that you're none of those things. There is at least one person who is crazy about you. And Jesus paid for that. You are not that disappointment. When you see God, you're not going to see disappointment, right? That's what the Song of Songs is all about. Uh, the, the Queen shares that with you, particularly here in Movement 4. Um, so listen, let's get, let's get into it after a word from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. If you didn't listen to the last show yet, please do so if you can. If not, no worries. Press on. We took a good look, albeit a very modern look, at the guts of the queen's identity, personality, longings, fear, paranoia, uh, traumas. She is a so real. She's such a three-dimensional human character. When the king finds her, she is a tragic character too, but the relationship, or or more accurately, the love of the great king is transforming her into a glorious queen who is experiencing love, and maybe for the first time in her life, by the way. And even more dramatic, she is actually beginning to love the king back. So, can I say this? Forget the egalitarian-complementarian debate for just a moment. And again, I have strong views on this, but just forget it for just a moment. If we all experienced what she is experiencing, we would have happier and healthier and more biblical relationships and families. I mean, Christians would be so much happier. There'd be less debate. There would be dialogue. (laughs) Here's one commentator's observation of the nature of human love between the, the human groom and his human bride in the Song of Songs. All right. So this would be a literalist looking at this from a human, human perspective. Just listen. It's fantastic. The relationship between the man and the woman is, in the first place, a reciprocal relationship of mutuality and equal participation. Wow. The man relates as a man and the woman as a woman with each belonging to and desiring the other. Each addresses the other, delights in the other, and in his or her love. Their love is expressed in kisses and embraces, 
sought and delighted in by each one. The man and the woman equally find nourishment and the love of the other. Each takes the initiative and goes out to the other. The man and the woman delight in the attractiveness of the other. Each one claims that the other is beautiful. The man admires the beauty of the woman in a way which points to her distinctive female features. Likewise, the woman admires the man in a way which delights in his maleness. There is no sense of domination of one by the other, no suggestion of priority or of one being the initiator more than the other. I love that. There is an equal partnership in this relationship of love. This relationship between the man and the woman in the song then is one where each participates equally and mutually as a man or as a woman toward the other. There is initiative and response by both of the lovers to each other. No note of priority or subordination intrudes, except as each is subordinate to the other in love. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yet there is no blurring of their maleness and femaleness. To do that would be to render this vibrant song bland. <laughs> well, are you jealous? I think that's where both the egalitarians and the complementarians want to get. It's it's here in in the song. All right, but, but, strap up. That's the kind of relationship some part of us have longed for since we were young, but none of us, uh, none of ours lives up to that ideal. So, but let me blow the lid off even further. Remember, I see this poem primarily not about a love between two humans. Rather, it's revealing uh, a trope, a type of love that God has for us, for his beat-up, struggling people, the bride of Christ, the gospel, right? And again, this is what we had imagined and hoped for when we were saved, but we've never lived up to this, right, experientially. Um, The world beats us up, traumatizes us again and again. And by the way, I I would also say the institutional church traumatizes us again and again, just saying. So, Anyway, let me set the ideal. I'm going to adjust that quote to speak of our ideal relationship between Jesus and us, the one Jesus purchased 2,000 years ago, and that we will ultimately experience in heaven, and God help us experience it a little more now. So just let that wash over you. I'm going to say, based on experience, that this will cause emotions to bubble up. Uh, You'll just have to name them. I suspect that some of you uh, will want to push back. (laughs) That's great. Let's dialogue. Bill at gospel-app.com. I want to hear what you think. But for now, uh, trust me, just listen. Let your prefrontal cortex uh, engage, but also let your feelings flow. Okay? Listen. The relationship between God and you is In the first place, a reciprocal relationship, one of mutuality and equal participation. God relates as God and you as you, with each relationally belonging to and desiring the other. Each addresses the other, delights in the other, and in his or her love. Their love is expressed poetically as kisses and embraces sought and delighted in by each one. God and you enjoying the love of the other. Each takes the initiative and goes out to the other. God 
and you delighting in the attractiveness of the other. Each one claims that the other is beautiful. God admires your created beauty in a way which points to your distinctive created features. Likewise, you admire God and lovingly worship him in a way which delights in his godness and perfection. Though there clearly could be, and maybe even should be, there is no sense of domination of one by the other, no suggestion of priority or of one being the initiator more than the other. There is a functional, equal partnership in the relationship of love. It's shocking to imagine God stepping down to truly embrace his beloved created one with such vulnerability. The relationship between God and you then is one where each participates equally and mutually as a king and a queen toward the other. There is initiative and response by both of the lovers to each other. No note of priority or subordination intrudes except as each is willingly submissive to the other in love. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Yet there is no blurring of his deity and your humanity. To do so, that would be to render this vibrant song bland. None of this could have possibly taken place apart from the work of Jesus on the cross. <laughs> oh, my. Well, all right, this is probably a good time to get another word from our sponsors. <laughs> we'll let you think about that, and we will be right back. So do you find it almost uncomfortable that this could even possibly be about God and you? I mean, I do. But listen, that's part of the problem. So often we imagine in our head uh, God on this throne way above us in a galaxy far, far away, but without getting into the mystery and the subtle aspects of the Trinity that are way above my pay grade. His spirit lives in your inner being, says Paul, always pouring out God's love for you as you are 24-7. So, and Here's the thing, if you weren't so relationally and emotionally broken, by the way, me too, and then add shame and guilt and failure on top of all of that, if you and I were emotionally and relationally whole, we would respond naturally in love. We would love him so much in return, you couldn't stop us from loving him and worshiping more than we love anyone. And we would ask for even more love. We would ask to get into the dance more. Let him take me into his chamber more. The Spirit has already humbled himself in a theological sense to identify with me and you, to embrace us. One of the fingerprints we'll see in the after picture in Movement 7 of the Queen is that she invites the king to go to the garden. She initiates. Now, we know from the book of Esther that such boldness from queens surely didn't go well in the Persian Empire. They must keep their place, right? But this queen, in this relationship with this God, invites the king to the rapturous garden. Isn't that stunning? We invite the spirit to blossom in us. Well, what do you think? Did you think that the spirit is going to get all huffy and pull rank about him being in charge and not just some mere human? Would he say, me, Tarzan, you, Dr. Bill, don't ask me, I ask you. Who do you think you are? Speak when spoken to. (laughs) Look, he could, he's God, and maybe he should. I would if I were him, but thank God I'm not him. And his love is in a category way beyond, way more intimate, way above mine. So, 
I get it. There's going to be some theologians who are going to want to push back on this. Go for it. Bill at gospel-app.com. To be clear, right now, God is loving you, theologian, with the height and width and length and depth of the immeasurable, impossible to categorize or describe love of Jesus. That love will affect your brain in ways that are similar to the way that your brain is affected by all relationships, but even bigger. So oxytocin. Uh, for trust and intimacy, dopamine for that rush and diminishment of anxieties and fears in the moment, serotonin, and there's so much more. So if you were to put the love of God, how you're experiencing the effect of the love of God into words, human words, it would look like, uh, I don't know, love poem? Oh, wait, we already have that. Does this love affair diminish the substance and glory of God? No. Does God need your love? Absolutely not. Does he enjoy it? Yeah, it appears so. Does God stepping from his throne to embrace you or me diminish his stature or confuse creator and creature differences? No. Uh, Jesus? Does opening up the affair in a way that you are invited to initiate the embrace, uh, initiate the, the intimacy, somehow make him small and you great? No. Here's the one that people have said that concerns them the most. Does saying that God desires me somehow reduce the validity of all of this? Yeah, that's the rush. See, I'm going to suggest that for so many, we don't feel worthy of being really desired by humans, much less than God, right? But God, because of Christ, desires you adores you, loves you, delights in you as if you were that worthy, as if you were that lovable and that beautiful. Just drink it in. It's going to take the power of faith to actually get that. Remember Calvin, Plephoria. See, that's the main reason we created the simple uncluttered gospel, to to say that to my midbrain over and over and over until it plants roots, because it's crazy and yet true. But if that is your struggle, your midbrain's confusion, and maybe your fears are being exposed, right, in a safe place, it could also be years of confusing theology that frankly looks more deistic, uh, distant God, than it should, maybe. Am I saying that God and you are equally desirable, whatever that means? No. I am saying that the redemption transaction of Jesus includes This, the desirability of Jesus has been put into your bio. It's a mystery, right? Your critical inner voice, no doubt, with Satan alongside, whispering it into your ear, makes its bones by saying to you that the holy God can't love you that much. Just can't. He'd love you if you were better, uh, did more, gave more, prayed more, but you, mm, right? Well, why would he accept your shame, right? You're not up to snuff. You're not even close. You're a hot mess. You're unlovable, unlovely. You, at best, can only get a narrow, fragile probation, maybe, on a good day. But you're already on strike two, uh, or 2,000, in my case. But he does love you that much, all because of Jesus. And he remains fully God. Jesus remains fully God and human. You remain fully human and a sinner. Down deep. Your critical inner spirit can't believe that such a love for someone such as you could possibly be real or last. And when the dirty little secrets, that's your dirty little secrets, are exposed, 
And God goes, what? It's over. You know that fig leaf you're hiding behind? But this is where the Song of Songs becomes a mirror for us. This is exactly where the queen is right now. Movement four, the marriage ceremony. Something she's longed for. She couldn't believe that she was picked for it, but then is scared to death at the consummation of being exposed as a disappointment or worse. It was too good to believe all along. She did okay during the betrothal stage, but now the king is going to come so close, nakedly close, uncomfortably close, and her masks aren't going to cover the ugly anymore. All right, context. From what we can put together in ancient Israel, there were two stages of the marriage process. There's the erosine, the betrothal, and the nisuin, the actual marriage ceremony and consummation. In Israel, when a man finds a potential bride, he is to go to her male caretaker, father, brother, and officially begin a betrothal negotiation. He offers a legal marriage document, the ketuvah, which includes his declaration of love for her, and of course, appropriate marriage price, the mohar. The mohar is all about her value, the bride's value, in the eyes of her groom-to-be. So what is she worth to him? And no doubt, it's going to make you cringe, you moderns. It feels like a transaction of ownership between two men. Uh, I get that. Let's pin that on the board for now. The official betrothal is done at a celebratory meal sealed by a cup of wine shared by the couple. All right, so hold that thought uh, for a couple of shows in the future. It's the first of two cups in the marriage process. Once they drink the cup, they are officially husband and wife. They cannot be separated except for a trial of divorce. The husband has made a covenantal commitment and public declaration of his love for the bride. She has said, I do publicly. So they're husband and wife. The queen would likely not be a direct party in the transaction. That's just the way it was. Uh, maybe she was, maybe she wasn't, but legally she didn't, it wasn't required. In the case of our queen, I'm guessing that it would be something that her brothers would have negotiated with the king. So technically, the groom is paying the family for the loss of future income from the girl. That's kind of the culture. After the mohar changes hands, they are legally married, but the marriage is not yet consummated. The husband and wife are not living together in any kind of uh, sexual relationship or even shared household. All right, then, and this is going to feel very strange to us as well, the couple separate for a time, and I mean really separate, often for a very long time, think a year or two. The groom goes to prepare a place at his father's house where they will live, and she spends the time faithfully waiting, uh, preparing herself to be a spotless bride. So at that later time, again, could be as much as a year later, the groom comes for his bride. It's a great, magnificent groom procession, and the expectations is that she's going to be ready. She's going to be waiting. She's going to be dressed to the nines. She's going to be looking forward to the marriage and, of course, the consummation, right? What girl wouldn't? The procession brings both the bride and the bridegroom to their new home where their, a marriage ceremony takes place that could last for days. Then, at the right time, the groom takes her, lachak, uh, that is, he has sex with her, they consummate the marriage, and the marriage is complete, right? The nesuin. So, how do you think she's doing? 
right before the groom procession, right before. She might have been waiting for a year for the, for the king, maybe hearing little messages. I mean, do you think her midbrain did pretty well or critical in her voice? <laughs> do, you, do you think that all of that, that nasty self-talk uh, stood down somehow? Or do you think she was suffering from regular invectives and accusations and, and paranoia? So where's the king grazing his flocks now? I wonder if he's even coming. I wonder if, if he's found out my dirty little secret. Yeah. I think that's what she's doing. And I think that the poet gives us some idea that's the case. I mean, I can't prove it, but I'm going to toss it out there. I wonder if movements two and five are failed groom processions. All right, now now just track me. And I mentioned it in passing when I spoke about them. but, But listen, do you hear something in them that could be considered the groom procession coming after her after about a year? Just listen. Listen, my lover. Look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past. The rains are gone and over. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Uh, Sounds like a, a groom procession to me. She doesn't go, and he leaves. Maybe he goes back to his father's house. <laughs> then there's movement five. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen. My lover is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I've taken off my robe, she says. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? Song 5, 2 to 3. So I wonder if we're meant to believe that the queen, this betrothed queen, is still so ambivalent. I mean, she desires the king, but she's scared to death of the union. Uh, And so she emotionally dysregulates. She's acting out. That's her midbrain. She becomes a runaway bride twice, maybe. And in that culture, that would be reason in some minds for a divorce. And the grand procession twice has fallen flat. And the groom is left holding the bag, (laughs) and an empty bag, by the way. Yet this guy keeps coming the ever-ready bunny. Well, what's going on in the queen's head? Why would she do uh, that? Why would she be so afraid of the final wedding ceremony? Because in her brain, this wonderful mystery tour is going to come to a crashing end when she and the king consummate their marriage. What do I mean? Remember, in the betrothal ceremony, the betrothal negotiation, the king and her brother's would have agreed upon a bridal price, the mohar. Well, how much is the mohar? It depends on the context. Her family's reputation, the king's reputation, uh, the king's interest, and of course, her status as a pure bride, her virginity. So if she was represented by her brothers as a virgin, but then it was discovered that she was not, Deuteronomy 22 says she could be, and in fact says should be, legally stoned. The dowry would be paid back, and her entire family 
would endure huge shame. Um, so how could this be determined? I'll say more, but during the consummation, her hymen would tear and cause blood to be found on the sheet of the wedding bed. Uh, it's a big deal. I'll say more uh, when we get to it. But we already know that there's not going to be any blood because she's not a virgin. Remember? Chapter 1, verse 6, and that's not all. She says, what little personal glory I had, my virginity, I squandered. My own vineyard, she said, I've neglected. It's poetry, right? She's not talking about a smaller plot of grapevines that are hers. In other places, her vineyard poetically referred to her vagina, her purity, her place of sexual pleasure. We don't know if she was not a virgin by choice or if it was forced upon her, you know, she was raped. We don't, we don't know. We don't know if it happened once or more than that. But in her brain, she knows she's going to be found out. She's not a virgin. She's going to be exposed to everyone publicly that she's not a worthy bride. She's going to hand the king another reason, a legal reason to drop her and to find someone else. She's going to give the daughters of Jerusalem, remember them, and her brothers just another reason to despise her, to overlook her, to throw her in the vineyard. The Israeli sun is going to scorch her again in the shadow of the chuppah. So down deep in her soul, she's afraid that the king and everyone else is going to find out her dirty little hidden secret, that she really isn't worth much. She's a loser. Isn't this equivalent in some ways to your fear and my fear seeing Jesus face to face with all of our secrets exposed? You know what I mean? Well, when she thinks about it, she's terrified. But even she, with all of her fears, is going to get caught up in the magnificence of the groom procession, this kingly procession, this time for a moment. Listen to the beginning of Movement 4. Who is this? coming up from the desert like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all of the spices of the merchant. Look, it's Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. Chapter 3, verse 6 to 8. I want to step back and remind us all of a tool that we've been using throughout the series, The Simple and Cluttered Gospel. There is no intrinsic power in it. It just reflects the powerful gospel. When you say it aloud, you're proclaiming the gospel to that dark, anxious, murky, largely unreached people group, your midbrain. It's just doing what it was designed to do. It's protecting you from getting hurt again. But it's shielding you from the ongoing experience of the love of God for you. It's closing the door to this God-sourced pleroforia. So you could keep working harder, uh, but that's not going to help. Your midbrain is you. So until you can, like an infant, look up into your caregiver's adoring, attuning stare, uh, you're not going to get any further. And to do that, you need power. Uh, so back to that scale. If you came to this particular show a two and something's happening, you're leaving it at a three, that's a 50% improvement. That's a dance. If you came at a six and you left an eight, boom, that's a 33% shot. Take it. Dance. Right? And, and here's how we do that. Just listen to the simple uncluttered gospel as I read it. Let it wash over you. Let it seep in. Be aware of how your midbrain is going to react because it is. Uh, is it 
is it come across angry, defensive, ashamed, passive aggressive? You know, what's wrong with me that you haven't heard this before? Or what? Put it in your own words. That's a clue to where the gospel power needs to work. Well, I want you to say the simple and clear gospel twice a day for 45 days. We are fighting a habit with power, word for word. Please, well, here it is. Jesus follower, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you. He loves you with all of his heart, as much as the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more. He can't love you any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better. Not so. How do you experience it more now? Simple. Good news, there is something you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the Spirit inside of you to make you know, experience, and feel just how much God loves you right now. Just ask. Ask again later today. Ask tomorrow. Make it a spiritual habit. Well, twice a day, 45 days. My first book, which is a must-read on the Song of Songs, The Kiss of God, is available at Amazon. Check it out. I'm still writing my updated book on the Song of Songs, but I've shifted to finish a book on overlooked and underappreciated women in the Old Testament. It's fascinating, interesting, lots of fun. These ladies need to have their stories told. Many of these great women have flown so far under the radar, you won't even remember their stories, but you will now. They deserve this uh, acknowledgement. If you want to know when the book is going to be published, get, get on the list, bill at gospel-app.com. And please, I'm begging you to get the word out about uh, the podcast on Movement 4. They, they should be radically life-changing for people who wonder if God is disappointed in them. Um, like those 20-somethings, right? And that's most of us. No doubt the Spirit brought somebody to mind, man or woman. So you know what to do, right? Call them, send them a link, forward it, put it on social media. This is good stuff, and you can have some fun. Another favor, follow this podcast. Very important. If there were a 1,000 people who followed this particular podcast, or even better, commented about this particular show, you can do it online or bill at gospel-app.com, you would be surprised how many people would take the chance to listen for the 30 minutes. Send me your comments and I'll post them on my website, bill at gospel-app.com. Thanks to Life Audio for their support. Take heart, child of God. What do you do when the world around you is falling apart? It's amazing to me how many people are breathing air. They're going about their business and doing the things you're supposed to do. But if you really ask them, they know that on the inside, they are spiritually and emotionally and relationally dead. If we're not careful, all of us can experience that death. When what we need to do, even as the world around us is falling apart, we need to learn how to march when it would be easier to stay where we are and die. Join me each week on the March or Die show as we discuss that and so much more.